Boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom. Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Kia ora and welcome to the Good Energy Project. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we begin, I just want to let you know that this show is also available in several places online. If you go to thegoodenergyproject.substack.com, you can subscribe, which means you'll get an email whenever I release a show or a blog. I might also invite you to events and ask for your feedback. You can also access the show as a podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let me know if you have any trouble finding them. So today I'm going to be talking to Brian Innes. He's part of an organisation called Living Economies, a group of volunteers who are committed to the aims of decolonising our economy and money systems, helping people get access to land and supporting the localisation of food systems, energy systems and economies. They do all this by researching and promoting things like alternative currencies, time banking, co-housing and cooperative living structures and no-interest community finance, which I'm going to talk to Brian about. I met uh, Brian through Helen Dew, an 85-year-old Carterton resident who's also part of Living Economies, until I met at a dinner in my brother's woolshed. Brian and his wife, Jo, are both deeply involved in the permaculture movement, and they've been running permaculture courses for many years. Around 20 years ago, they organised a series of landmark events called the Eco Shows, which gathered people from around the country and the world and initiated the launch of Transition Towns New Zealand, a grassroots movement where local communities work together to increase their resilience and reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. Brian studied economics at university and since then he's developed a deep understanding of the history and nature of money. In 2006, Brian and Joe travelled to Europe to learn about interest-free banking. When they returned, Brian set up a whole new system to enable ordinary people to get access to money by pooling their resources. It's a little bit like a bank, but you don't have to pay interest. It was originally called the Genuine Wealth System, but it's now known as Savings Pools. I'm excited to hear more about it and to get Brian's thoughts on some of the big questions I've been exploring. Like, how does our money system contribute to climate change? So, welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, Lou. Uh, Thanks so much for coming to talk to me. My pleasure. Um, To begin with, I'd like to start by asking a little bit about your childhood. So, I wondered if you could tell me where you come from and where you grew up. Um, I'm actually uh, from the Wairarapa, from Masterton. Ah. Um, and uh, actually, uh, we might, as soon as we're talking about money, mm-hmm. my father was, uh, his father was a farmer at Tinui, which is on the east coast of mm-hmm. the Wairarapa. Mm-hmm. And that was during the 
Great Depression, and his father died. And when he died, the farm was sold, mm-hmm. and and so my father's mother lent that money from the sale of the farm to surrounding farmers who were struggling because of the poor returns to farming at the time. Ah. And, and then Michael Joseph Savage government came in, the first Labour government, yeah. and they passed some legislation which entailed wiping of debt of farmers. And so our family lost all its money at that point in oh, time. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, they didn't they didn't wipe all debt, but private debt they did. And um, so my father and all his brothers became farm managers rather than farm owners. Oh, right. And I don't feel bad about what happened at all. Mm. I think that, that was a very sensible thing to do because the farmers were who were bringing in all the income into the country at the time. And if the farmers, and most of them, they would have lost their farms to the banks um, had the debts not been either taken over by government, which mm. they did, mm. or wiped. It was a sensible thing to do at the time. Mm. Yeah. Do you so, think, did that, um, did that background influence you, do you think? Uh, well, I suppose so, because I did become a farmer myself. Oh, I um, didn't realise that, yeah. At, at one stage. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you know, from a small town, that was a rural town, Masterton. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked in the freezing works mm-hmm. as, as a, you know, from 15 years old until I went to university during school holidays, and I've... I worked in wool stores, and so that's my background uh, in my childhood anyway. Mm. So there's a question that I like to ask everyone, which is, um, do you remember when you were young, what absorbed your energy or, like, what fascinated you when you were a child or young person? Fascinated me? Yeah. Oh, that's a tricky one. I know I liked reading a lot. Mm. I was a... You know, a boy who used to go into the library um, frequently and at at school there was good libraries. And so reading was something I've always enjoyed Mm. and I've always been interested in history. Mm. Mm. Do you remember when you first came across money as a thing and how what you thought about it? Uh, I... I had my savage introduction was a bit later in life. I when I I bought my farm with with my wife mm. and uh, I had two kids, two boys, and um, uh, we went through the period where the stock market crash of 1987 happened, and also it was a period of high inflation, and mm. I ended up paying 22% interest on my farm mortgage. Wow. So I have a fair idea of how rugged it can be for many people mm. when uh, we have high inflation and our incomes do not end up anywhere near matching mm. um, the inflation. Mm. Is that what kind of got you interested in money systems? Uh 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I've always been aware because my parents' generation were young people during the Great Depression mm. before the Second World War, and they had particular approaches to money. And as a student, I learned to live on the smell of an oily rag, mm. and and that continued into my adulthood. Mm. Uh, I was interested in money, and certainly after that experience of 22% interest, I mm. was no longer interested in <laughs> paying in interest. Debt. Yeah, no, yeah. not interested in being in debt whatsoever, and mm-hmm. I've not been in debt since then. Mm. Um, you know, it's a, a debt. You know, you're beholden to the banks. They tell you when you've got to sell your stock and mm. when you've got to do this and that and retain reduce your overdraft to zero regular mm. you know they are in control and they can really mess you around mm. um, did you um, sell your farm in the end yes i did yeah mm. yep but again you know it was when the prices were down never came out of it with much money at all mm. Um, mm. so that's such as life one of the things i'm trying to do with this project the good energy project is I don't have a background in economics and I don't fully understand the money system yet. And um, a lot of the conversations I've had with people have been about growth and how our economic system is designed to keep growing, but you can't have continuous growth on a finite planet. And I get that in principle, but I really want to understand what it is about our financial system that means it keep needs to keep on growing like like what are the what are the laws or the mechanics that sort of do that well um i i can probably partially answer your question yeah but to tell you the truth i don't think there are many people who are bank managers or involved in the banking system Mm. who understand themselves it's not common to find people who really do understand it but mm. what I can say is that the banking system is about aggregating money. So all the depositors' money goes into the bank account and the banks decide what to do with it. Mm. And I worked out that there's about um, $25 billion, uh, sitting in bank accounts on interest-bearing accounts mm. uh, you know, everybody in New Zealand who has a living of any sort gets their money paid into the bank mm. and they spend it over the next week or whatever the term is of their payments. Yeah. And on average, half of that money is sitting in the bank. Mm. And so if you aggregate all the population of New Zealand who are receiving money into their bank and yeah. divide that by a half, mm. then... That is sitting in the banks as free money for the banks to make money from mm-hmm. um, and to pay their profits out of, which are billions every year as well. And all of that money that is going out of the banks is leaving our economy. Um, it's going overseas mostly. Mm-hmm. And that money is a claim against the productivity of New Zealanders. What do you mean and a claim against... The productivity? What I mean by that is that money that's gone overseas is of no value unless you can buy something from New Zealand with that money. Mm. So 
that's what I mean. It's a claim against New Zealand assets or products. Mm. So when we and get that, into debt... Um, so no, on, we're not even getting into debt at this oh, stage. Okay. We're, just, mm. we're just putting money in our bank account yeah, because okay. you have to put it there when you earn money. Mm. And, and all of that money, on average, half of it is there all the time. Right. So if you've got, say, two or three billion going out overseas and there's 25 billion that's just sitting there for nothing, mm. um, that's quite a tax on New Zealanders. Could I just um, clarify, this is the money that we just put in our bank accounts when we get paid or something and it's just sitting there. Um, yeah. And then, so how does that end up going overseas? Uh, the, just the bank profits, they, their profits are in the billions mm. and they go overseas and the people who receive them, the shareholders, the overseas shareholders, it ends up that they can buy the farms down in Queenstown, Wanaka, wherever, or they can buy New Zealand product. And so um, if we're continuously sending money overseas, mm. then we have to be able to supply product to back that money to give confidence for the people overseas to use the money. Mm. And so if the product is going overseas, it's, it's like a big leak. And mm. so you have to be more productive in order to keep having inflation. And so we try and have inflation at 2 or 3%. But, you know, when it gets out of hand like it is at the moment, mm. then the answer is to try and have a grow the economy. Mm. But the way the banks work is that, that if someone borrows money and you think about all the real estate in New Zealand and how most of it's got mortgages against it to the banks, mm. then, then all that interest goes to the banks, mm, and mm. they will have some costs, of course, mm. but, but then that, a lot of that ends up going overseas. Because mm, the banks unless, are owned by overseas. Yeah, and unless you have a continuously growing economy, then you have a sort of complete destabilization. It doesn't really work. You end up having revolutions if people can't feed themselves and mm, so on. Mm. Um, so, so you do have to have continuous growth. Mm. But if you have continuous growth, then you have to have the labour to do that growth. Which is why, in my lifetime, we've gone from one person in a family working and being easily able to pay a small mortgage, uh, have a house, mm. have food, have a good education for the children, have a holiday every year. That was pretty normal when I was young, mm. um, just one income. Well, now people, most people end up needing two incomes and many have got three and four incomes. Mm. They're just working machines. It's really a form of slavery. And that's just caused by the way our banking system works. Mm. Mm. And if that money was not being managed by the banks mm. and going basically into corporate hands, which means the hands of the wealthy, it could be, um, like, for example, 
Germany, 50% of the banks are actually community banks, uh, localized banks, mm. and they have a very strong economy. And you imagine if, um, I, well, I live in the Coromandel, and if we had the Bank of the Coromandel, mm. and everyone put money into that bank and then uh, the lending of it, of that money, was into the Coromandel economy, then Coromandel would be booming. And the same goes everywhere. But instead, the banking system and the government are in cahoots, really uh, limiting the uh, ability to create local banks. They've actually destroyed huge numbers of credit unions over the last 20 years. okay. Yeah. Um, So uh, your interest is why do you have to have growth yeah, and yep. that you you do have to have growth. If if you're sending profits overseas, then mm. basically it's like um, in the Roman days, it's like sending tribute overseas. Oh, to, okay. to, yeah. to the overlord, you know, it's yeah. just a, yeah. a, a different, just a different way of doing it. That's all. Well, we don't. I don't think we normally think of when you put money in the bank that that's actually giving a tribute to. Anyone? It just seems like no. it's your little store of money that you can draw on. Yeah, it is. It's sort of stored, but you're losing it right at the moment, seven percent a year on that store. So, so the value of the money is diminishing by seven percent. That's the because of inflation. That's because of inflation, mm. and when you pay your interest on your mortgage if you're buying a house mm. or buying a car or buying anything, then that money is um, leaving your personal economy and is going to the people who own that service mm. of banking. Mm. And so their wealth is increasing at your expense. Right, yeah. And so I'm sort of focusing on the connection between economics and climate change. So do you know what impact that has on the climate? Okay, so if you have growth, Mm. then growth means more productivity in an economy. Mm. And uh, that doesn't mean having a time-rich lifestyle. It means working harder. Mm. And so we work harder and harder and smarter and smarter and now because of lack of labor we're starting to think about robots and stuff like Mm, that mm. Um, and uh, the more we work the more resources we need to produce Mm. and so the more oil we consume and we are always consuming more and more fossil fuels and we're consuming more and more steel and zinc and you know anything mm. the more you work the more materials you need mm. and the more energy you use to do it mm. um, and that energy is generally you can translate that back into carbon which is the um, CO2 in the atmosphere and, and uh, climate change right yeah so the more that we work the more resources we have to use and the greater the impact on climate change, put simply. Mm. And and there is a lot of talk about degrowth 
the idea of degrowth means being less of a consumer. Mm. And so, uh, you know, all of these things we're talking about are sort of stories that we think are made of concrete, but they're not. Um, so you can, for example, turn the growth into culture. So you can have a lot more um, uh, cultural expression. Mm. And uh, But time-rich lifestyle or life mm. means that you can spend more time with your children and mm. your partner and your friends and uh, people can be happier and more relaxed. Mm. Um, well, this was, so, this was one of the things that prompted me to do this project because I was working full-time, but I, I didn't have any time or energy left to kind of think about doing anything, any volunteering or any extra work or think about the planet, really. And I just was feeling more and more stuck. And I suppose, I, first of all, I blamed that on um, myself because I thought maybe I'm just not very efficient or something. But then when I got thinking about, like, what is it about the system that's causing that? That's what's led to this whole investigation. Yeah. So basically, um, earning less and spending less, if you do that, you can have severe problems because the cost of renting is so high or the cost of buying houses is you've got to spend about seven times your income to buy mm. a house these days mm. as opposed to about two to three times your income mm. when I was young. And all that productivity is what's causing climate change. Mm. Uh, globally, you know, China, you know, the industrialization of China and India and it just it goes on and on and mm. on. So mm. we actually have to learn to uh, live a happy life with less, and that means radical change in the way we do things. You mm, could call it mm. our economy. The word economy to me means how we do our exchanges. So yeah, that's, okay. about yep. that's about what we do. And exchanges happen uh, both within every cell of our body and between people, mm. and all animals have exchanges between mm the environment and themselves and it's just it's a it's a part of being a living thing mm. just a part of life yeah part of all life so can you Is tell it? me how the savings pools fit in we had a woman called Eva Stenius came to our first eco show and uh, she was a speaker I didn't actually hear her speaking because mm. we were so busy the about mm. 7,000 people there, so mm. it was a really full-on thing. Mm. Mm. Um, but she was a board member for the JAK Bank in Sweden mm -hmm. and was talking about interest-free banking and how it was done. And she offered to induct anyone in New Zealand into interest-free banking ah, yeah. if anyone wanted to set something up. Mm -hmm. and about a year later, Joe and I were approached uh, by um, two uh, people whose uh, relatives had had a fire and lost their house. And oh, okay. 
and uh, they they were Māori and they had a certain amount of land which m- couldn't be used as collateral by banks because they don't accept Māori land as collateral. Okay. And because they had land, uh, the housing, housing New Zealand wouldn't lend to them because they appeared to be too wealthy because they had land. Because they had land. Uh, and I mean by land, they might have had 30 acres or something. It's not a lot of land, but mm. they did have. And, um, and also Māori Affairs, or what the equivalent government department at the time was, they also wouldn't lend. And so they were at their wits' end because this mm. couple were in their early 70s and he had a disease, what is it, the blood sugar level thing. Oh, diabetes. Diabetes, yeah, yeah. He had diabetes. He wasn't well. Mm. And so I said, well, look, we could have, I know how to give you, get you a house that's very low cost, but a very good quality house, because mm. I've learned through permaculture how you do it. Okay. Yeah. You still need money to buy materials yeah. of some sort. Not a lot, but you still do need some. And uh, I, I said, if, you willing, if you're willing to do this business of um, interest-free finance, mm-hmm. I'm willing to set it up for you. Okay, and yeah. They, they haven't been about it for a while, a few months, and then eventually said, yep, right, we're going for it. Okay. So, so then Joe and I uh, did a little bit of fundraising. We have given $5,000 by mm-hmm. a, a Roman Catholic priest, actually. Okay. Never met. Yeah. Actually, Organised by Helen, actually. Oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah, and uh, we we went off. Um, I was doing beekeeping. I had a a suitcase full of Monica honey. We took off and went to Sweden and uh, spent ten days with board members, yeah, the managers, the solicitors, the people who did all the backroom stuff. And and this um, is was this a full scale interest free bank? Yes, yeah, they had, I think, 30,000 members of the bank. Oh, wow. And uh, um, so they they took us through all the processes of how it was done. Mm. I knew before I went there that I couldn't start a bank because to start a bank in New Zealand, you have to have about 30 to $40 million. Um, okay. Which gets lodged with the Reserve Bank, I think. Mm. And that sort of the backing, the the asset banking of your banking. So, uh, so, so you, anyway, yeah. On my way to, to to over there, I happened to sit on the plane next to a guy who actually was a banker from Holland, and he told me about where the Rabobank, which is a New Zealand bank that uh, works with the agricultural sector. Mm. Um, where they came from and what was was that up until the Second World War the the farmers were regarded as sort of peasants and they Was this were, in the Netherlands? Yes. And they weren't didn't have access to banks as such. The merchant banks of Holland were there as trading banks for the people with money who were traders. Mm. But not there for the farmers. Mm-hmm. And so they had uh, equivalent of little village cooperatives, financial cooperatives, mm-hmm. 
And after the Second World War, they amalgamated about a thousand of these little wee cooperatives into the something called the Rabo Bank. And, okay. Yeah. And uh, half the Rabo Bank still serves uh, the farmers. The farmers there. in uh, the Netherlands. And, yeah. And mm. and then they have another side of their bank, and they're here in New Zealand, mm-hmm. lending to our farmers, but remitting their profits back to the farmers in the Netherlands. Oh, okay. So they just okay. try to actually, um, extract the system that mm-hmm. is what colonisation is all about. Right. What I learned from that was that you can go from a thousand little organisations that mm. are around money to becoming a big bank. And there I'd come, I came from... Sweden, where there was a bank, where mm-hmm. everybody put their money into a bank, but mm-hmm. it had to have all this backing, and there was no way I could do that. So I then had, had this brilliant idea of tipping the banking system upside down and vesting the rules of the banking system in agreements between people who were in small clusters. And so I, I did the reverse of the Bank and... That meant that I didn't have to jump through all the hurdles of banking systems because mm, mm. I wasn't becoming a bank. I wasn't creating a bank, and I wanted to set it up interest-free, and so there was no profits to be made out of it. And because yeah. there's no profits, it's not of interest to inland revenue either. Right, and, yeah. And, and so the JAK Bank, their interest-free system was based on equal give and take um, and not on interest. And the way you have equal give and take is through substituting reciprocity mm. for interest. Interest, mm-hmm. it's all it, the bank, bank takes. But yeah. if you have a cluster of people and reciprocity, then the reciprocity is people helping people. And that's what happens. So... There's no money lost, but half of what you pay in if you borrow money from your pool is mm. a contribution into the pool for other people to use. And at the end of the term when you've paid off your loan, mm. you can withdraw your reciprocity component, which is equal in amount to what you originally borrowed, and you've got this lump sum mm. in your hands equal to what you borrowed. And that's how it works. And it works at every level. Like when you buy a house, normally you would expect to pay about three times the value of the house before you owned it. Right, And yeah. So you then own a third of the value that you paid out and two-thirds of it has gone into the banking system. Yeah, Well, yeah. that's not what happened, happens with savings pools. All the money that you're reciprocating with comes back to you when the term of your loan is up and you've paid your loan back. Okay. So, um, so were, you, were you able to help the couple with their house? Um, up, uh, with Prometheus Finance, which mm. was a, um, a, a finance company that was an ethical finance company, mm. acted as the administrators mm. for us uh, when we set the system up. Mm. Um and I was involved with two Māori people in a trust so that we could sort of 
oversee and make sure that things worked right. Mm. But we ended up building a house, mm. but not doing everything we wanted to do because there were some problems with um, part of the people in the trust. Mm. And uh, so that never... The family got a house all right, mm. um, and it was made from um, pumice and clay. So oh, wow. it's sort of a, uh, a building that will be there in hundreds of years. So, oh, okay. Um, uh, and we've got materials like that all, you know, in New Zealand, lots of them, and so we can... Low-cost housing is quite available. Mm. Anyway, mm. that's not the point. Um, the point is that after that, I went to a conference in, in Wanganui that was put on by Living Economies, and uh, it was actually there that the time banks were first sort of introduced, and mm-hmm. um, I was invited onto the board, and another board member um, offered to do the administration of, of the savings board, and so uh, I did some speaking in different places and pools started to be created, you know. Mm-hmm. I went over in Raglan and had a public presentation and they started to pull pretty much straight away. One of the members there had done a quick sort of an assessment of how much money left Raglan each year in interest payments. And it yeah. turned out to be something like about $25 million. Wow. So it's raising a lot. Yeah. And... You know, people don't actually understand how much their communities are hemorrhaging. Mm. And um, so we need to develop systems for communities to keep the money in their community. Can you use a savings pool to buy a house? Oh, there are numbers of people who've done that, yes. Okay. There are some pools that have been specifically set up mm. to help people uh, eliminate their mortgages and things like that. Mm. Some people will borrow because they want more stock because they've got a build business or mm. they want some tools because they're a, a carpenter and they need new tools or whatever, you know, or they just want a holiday or mm. whatever. You see people borrowing to reduce their cost of living. They mm-hmm. may be getting solar panels and stuff like that. Okay, yep, yep. And all their members have now got electric cars. Yeah, okay. Um, They're just all different. One young woman, I think she borrowed $20,000 from Mm. her pool and within two years she was making more than a million a year. Wow, cool. She was just very switched on. Yeah, other people borrow because they've gone through a crisis, they've broken up with husbands and partners, and and um, they've got to get over a hump. Mm, and, mm. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, mm. well, you learn a lot from yeah. the process. So um, how big are these pools? And if someone wanted to join a pool or make a pool, how do they do it? Well, they're, they're okay. That's... That's two questions, sorry. <laughs> okay, there's, there's several questions in there. So how many people in a pool, usually between about five or seven and 30 people. Okay, yeah. Um, how many pools are there? 
the way it was set up was they were not centralized at all. So I don't know how many people specifically are in any other pool or how much money is in that pool. I set it up deliberately mm. so that every pool is like a cell. It's isolated from all others. Mm. And if okay. they want to make contact with others, they can. And um, how do they actually work? So if you get a cluster of people together that want to start a pool, do, do they... Well, does, yeah. they, 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 I can supply agreements to them so that they understand, you know, basically how it works. They open a bank account. You don't have to have a legal entity to have a bank account. Mm. A collection of people is not a legal entity unless it is registered. And it can be registered as a charity or a trust or a corporation or a company or, you know, there's so many ways. But when you register an entity, mm. the entity was created by government legislation. Mm. And then you are accountable to government through that legislation. Yeah. Whereas by not having an entity, it's a different story altogether. It's just like a group of people getting together for morning teas or a play group for children or a little scout camp. They're just, you're allowed to do these things because you're a human being and that's yeah. being human. And you have one person who's an administrator and they can download the bank statement. You usually have at least two people who are signatories on the bank statement, mm -hmm. people who put money into the pool, put it into the bank account, and the objective is to lend that money as quickly as possible because the longer it is in, the bank is using it, not, yeah, okay. not the pool. Yeah, so you so, want it out there in the world doing stuff. Yeah, and it does good that way. We use a, um, a game uh, which you can do sitting around a table with half a dozen people. Mm. And just a, a sort of a mock run of being in a savings pool, putting money in and making decisions about who wants to borrow. Each mm. person has a profile. Someone's a doctor and someone's a laborer and someone's a teacher and mm. whatever. And they all can operate from that persona mm. and you find that within about two rounds of the table of putting money in, you're collapsing time, you see, and putting money in and borrowing money. Yeah. Um, that people get it. They understand how it works. It's ah, very, so you kind of play a game to show yeah, the principle yeah. of how it works. That's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. And what they see is that, well, suddenly you start from nothing mm. and all of a sudden you've got, hundreds if not thousands of dollars in your account. Mm. And, and then you're all thinking about, well, how can we use this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's and, an exciting know, proposition. People have had phenomenal success in their lives and solved all sorts of problems. Mm. Loads of people have done things like got over the top with their credit cards and they can borrow and pay off their credit cards and cut them up. It's like having a pause button for 
spending. You still have access to money, mm. but you need to go through your pool. And so you stop your discretionary spending as much oh, you need to, as an adult. You need to get everyone to agree if you're going to borrow it. Is that right? More, more or less, yeah. yeah. Mm. So you That's can't fine. do a sneaky little spend? No. Mm. I mean, that's not to say that you can't spend money out of your bank account, but, mm. you know, one of the things that's uh, a condition of, uh, for some pools of paying off a credit card is get rid of your credit card and don't use it. If you need money, come back to us. Yeah, okay, yeah. I can see how it works for... Um if you've got a pool and some people have money but other people don't, then I can see how that could work to lend money. But what about if you've got just a poor community where no nobody has much money, then... Well, that, that happens. Um, and so I'm just thinking about one, one pool that started, uh, I was told about, they didn't have much money and... Uh, they approached someone in another pool and um, the other pool yeah. had plenty of money and they simply moved it across. And, uh, ah, so know, one pool into another pool. Yeah. And, oh. and that, that got them on, on their feet. And yeah, okay. In my mm. knowledge, um, because of the way it's set up, no pools have actually lost any money mm. because... When you are responsible for the people that you are sitting around the table with once a month, or some pools are actually internet-based, mm. um, but uh, when you know the people, um, they don't let you down. Yeah, yeah, right. They don't let anyone down. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's based that, on trust between quite a small group of people. It's based on integrity, mm. and it's based on what you might call due diligence, which mm. is the people in the pool being confident that the person who's borrowing is not doing something really silly for themselves mm. and mm. they're making the right decision. Mm. So, so what you've got when you've got a pool is a bunch of people who actually have got a lot of life experience and are able to very often help other people making really sound decisions. Mm. So you know, it sounds remember. like it's a real community building thing as well as a way of getting money. Yes, um, I, I think that interdependency is the glue that holds all communities together. Mm. And so it's a really good community building tool, um, having a savings pool. Is it very um, hard to do? Like, does it involve very much work? Um, it involves, so let's say we've got a group of um, 15 or 20 people on a mm. pool. Mm. Then uh, you need to have a meeting to make decisions about lending because, mm. y you know, you put money in your bank, in the bank account, but then very quickly there's a whole heap of money in there mm -hmm. and you need to be having it out to your members as as quickly as possible so it's not being wasted on the banks. Yeah, okay. So you okay. have to meet you um, have to meet together to 
decide what to spend it on or who to lend it to. Yes, but in practice, that is consensus decision-making, but usually each pool uh, creates a protocol about their decision-making and they would say, okay, if we get 40, 50, 60% of people participating in the decision-making, then uh, those people can make the decision. Mm-hmm. And so some people don't participate much and other people are very religious about participating. Mm-hmm. So it's as onerous as you want to make it. Yeah, I see. Yeah. And and as I'm on in, in a pool and we use Lumio as our decision-making tool. And oh, okay. so I get it. From Lumio, I get an alert for, um, in my email account um, saying that there's uh, a discussion about this or that. And so I can go on to Lumio and participate and mm. help with the decision making. Yeah, I was going to ask about technology and like what technology you need to do it. Um. Well, the administrator usually just uses a spreadsheet. Okay, um, yeah. And it's pretty simple, really. What I would really like is to yeah. have an app that, yeah. that, that did that um, accounting side of it, but we, I haven't been able to pull that off. Mm. And, and it also needs, you know, like, whilst there's no interest, it could be, though so far we haven't done it that way, it could be that uh, someone gets paid or there's a small administration payment mm, um, mm. that would be a fair enough thing at the moment it's it's all voluntary mm, which when people are busy can be hard I guess it, yeah, that's the, that's you ask me about well how do I start a new pool well mm. that is the part that is um, less easy mm. you can join an existing pool if the existing pool is open for new members. How do you um, know if one exists? Like, how do you find a pool near you, for example? Quite honestly, um, I, you know, I know of the existence of some pools mm. by knowing that certain people who are friends who are in a pool, mm. but I don't really have a clue. You know, there's could be 40, 50, 60 pools in New Zealand. I really don't know. Yeah, okay. Um, it's not it my be, business to know. It would be cool if there was an app where you could see if there's a pool near you and then That's right. Approach if you them. A, well, you should be able to have an app mm. and be able to invite people that you know who you want to be part of your pool mm. to register on the app and then you basically, you're away. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not technically very complex to set it up, mm. but it does, to set up an app, you're looking at, from what I can gather, $100,000 plus to set mm. up a decent mm. app. Mm. And um, I haven't got $100,000, and so far we've all made do with spreadsheets. Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, there's so, an opening then, for somebody. Yes, the pools that exist exist because they've got at least one person who's willing to be an administrator on the pool. Yeah, okay, yeah. What is next for you? 
Do you have an, a new plan or a new um, uh, dream? Well, I'm interested in uh, in this bank on Dave thing where they, uh, they've opened these, this bank in a little town in, um, is this, in Britain. There's a movie out at the moment, Bank of Dave. Yeah, is it, that's, that's the right. Dave you're talking about? Yeah, and it's a really, it's quite an exciting, it's a fun movie. It's really good, lots of good mm. music and everything. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but also there are three documentaries oh, um, yeah. on it, and they give much more practical and actual, there's no love affair in it, it's just mm. an explanation. Mm. So mm. it's a how-to of what his processes were. Mm. And I reckon uh, he, he started doing that about the same time we started doing the the savings pools and figuring it out. Yeah. Working how it was done. So what, what did he do? Uh, well, he, his idea was, just like we have in New Zealand, all the mainstream banks were pulling out of all the local communities. Mm. And, and so the financial services were no longer available and people were going belly up because, I mean, this sorts of things have been happening all over the country and they happened all over Britain as well. Mm. And he was determined that what they needed was to have a local bank and he it took them years to get through all the hoops and hurdles, but mm. he did. Now they've got a local bank. It's not an interest-free bank, but the profits of the bank go to the community for community organisations and charities and things like mm, that. Mm. And it means that the locals have got access to local finance. Right, and, yeah. and, you know, it's a bit like savings pool. Because everybody knows everybody, they don't default. And he hasn't lost any money. Yeah, okay. So, and and you, want to, you want to set up something similar here? I'd like to learn exactly what sort of legislation he had and hoops and hurdles he went through mm, that because mm. I considered it was not possible here and it may still not be possible, but mm. clearly um, times they are changing. People mm, are getting really mm. pissed off about the banks mm. and more aware of what, of what they're doing to... New Zealand society mm, is mm. feeling ripped off and not supported. Mm. And, and so maybe the, we're coming to a time when change can be pushed through. Yeah. And an existing bank can lend interest-free. There's no, they can do that. The, the Taranaki Savings Bank sometimes lends interest-free. Oh, okay. Um, uh, they won't tell you about it because they don't do it often. Yep. They have to yep. put it that way. Mm, mm. And, and so you, if they were to work on the basis of reciprocity, like the JAK Bank, mm. then that's entirely possible too. Um, JAK Bank that has a membership fee which covers their costs. Uh, okay, um, so they so don't have not, to charge interest. Not, they don't charge interest, but mm. they do costs and the wages of mm. the staff. Yeah, okay. But I, I can see that if it was servicing the commercial sector and townships, that they would be able to afford 
paying a certain amount in terms of fees for the service that make it quite viable. Mm, and, mm. Uh, the, and it's possible to have what I call a community chest with each pool such that a, a very small percentage of what's paid back for, in the repayment of loans goes into a community chest for gifting to community organisations. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. You can build that into it quite easily. Mm. Um, so I'm interested. Whether or not it can happen, I don't know, but Joe and I have been talking about it, and uh, with a bit of luck we'll end up in Britain sometime next year. Ah, cool, and, uh, yeah. Go and do some work on it, yeah. Well, unfortunately we're running out of time, so i better ask my last couple of questions um and yeah the the second to last question is um if you could be part of achieving anything in the world absolutely anything uh what would that be oh well it would be um getting cooperatives into the public psyche and getting people willing to work at being a part of the cooperative. Mm. And it doesn't matter if it's a financial, well, actually everything is about exchange and so it's about economy. But and the more cooperatives uh, we have, the happier society we will be. Mm. So that's what I'd like to see. And what are you up against? What makes it hard? Uh People are suspicious of cooperatives. They think that it, it's difficult getting people to form agreements and difficult for uh, uh, working together. And it's true that it takes work. We are not, we have been trained out of being cooperative. You know, everybody was cooperative once upon a time. Mm. The indigenous societies were always cooperative. But what we're finding in our community is the second generation is take to a duck, like a duck to water. They are much more uh, comfortable with behaving cooperatively. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and the third generation, probably it's sort of like, being indigenous, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, okay. Just, so uh, it doesn't take yeah, long. No, it does take a while. It takes, takes a few generations. And, and just learning how to roll with being part of a group. But equally, it's very hard to be isolated and alienated from other people, mm. autonomous. Mm. That's why we have so many people in prison and so many people who are struggling because it's the hard yards they're doing. Yeah, and so it's hard to be alone. Cooperation is another is is another way of doing it, but you do have to work at it, mm. and it gets easier with time. Mm. And and well, you know the people on certain savings pools don't don't complain about. Uh, cooperation. Occasionally people do withdraw. You still get some personality conflicts that mm. can happen, mm. but it's not the norm. Mm. Um, 
My last question is, if you can imagine you're 85 years old, are you, I don't know how old you are. But, um, oh, would you, are you asking me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, no, no, I'm 75 years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so imagine you're 85 years old and you're sitting in a very comfortable chair, just sort of reflecting on your life. What do you feel most proud about? I don't... I, I, a few ask me what gives me most pleasure on mm. my memories. That would be an easier way for me to answer. Okay. And pride to me is about being puffed up about one. <laughs> okay. Well, what, 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 gives, what gives you the most pleasure then? Well, um, what gives me most pleasure is the feedback sometimes I get from people um, that I've forgotten I've ever even known them or done anything for them. And that happens quite randomly out of the blue. Sometimes, oh yes, so and so, you told me this, and then I went off and did that. Mm, I mm. think it's quite gratifying. Mm. But I'm sure that lots of people do that in their lives. School teachers get that. All sorts of people get it, mm. and it's really nice to get that sort of feedback that you've made a beneficial difference in someone else's life. Yeah, definitely. Well, we've run out of time now, so I better say goodbye. But thank okay. you so much. Righty-ho. Thanks, Lou. Thank you. It's been a really fascinating conversation. (laughs) (laughs) The show is also available as a podcast at thegoodenergyproject.substack.com.